Lord knows I'm not exactly a stranger to doing a work that's already been commented on many, many times, but I have to admit, when I first saw the request for a Blade Runner rumination, I was a little hesitant. This is a movie that's already been dissected many, many times by many, many people. This movie came out the year I was born, to give you a little bit of an example of how long this movie has been dissected. Granted, I've discussed movies that have come out before I was born, so I suppose that's a shrug, but regardless, this movie is an incredibly interpretive work on purpose. In other words, what I'm going to say is probably, in fact, I would actually say guarantee, going to disagree with what many of you people have to say. But I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I don't think that's actually something that's a negative or a wrong. In fact, I think that's kind of the point of a highly interpretive work like this one. It also doesn't help when you have a highly interpretive work with multiple versions and the, the, the different stuff in each version kind of contradicts some of the stuff from the other versions to the point where several of the major debates have to use, have to specify I'm using this version as evidence for my theory because in the other versions that evidence doesn't exist or it's contradicted or whatever. For reference, I watched the final cut version. Not out of preference, but because it's the one I happen to have access to. <laughs> so, for any of you who know what I mean by that, I, that's the one I was going through. For those of you who don't know what I mean by that, let's see. So we have the original theatrical release, the first director's edition, uh, the chopped up version whose name I can't think of, the final cut, and I feel like there's a fifth edition of this movie that came out. And I guess also we should also point out that there's a book, which also completely disagrees with several aspects of the, of the film and whatnot, and there's some interpretation that comes to that too. Long story short, I just watched the final cut version. I didn't do every single version to see every single variance and difference. It's like when I get to the Lord of the Rings movies later this year, I'll be watching the extended editions and nothing else. And I won't be rereading the books either. Uh, so, obviously this film was in many ways inspired by Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? In, in an open and honest kind of a way. They, they have... They, they have freely stated that that was an inspiration for a lot of the points of the film. And I point that out partially because some people argue that this movie is the origin of what we now refer to as cyberpunk. They're a concept of cyberpunk. And some people argue, well, no, no, it was the book Neuromancer. Um, fun fact, Neuromancer actually came out after this. He was actually working on Neuromancer when, uh, when this movie was being made, and there was some concern about that, which was smoothed over, of course. But I bring up the electric sheep thing because, A, if you haven't read it, you should. Seriously. And, B, one of the big points of Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep was to really hammer in the intangible difference between the androids and the people, which was the empathy factor. That was one of the biggest points of that book, uh, in my opinion at least, was the whole androids, you know, synthetic life could not have human empathy, whereas... You know, humans could. Uh, and that was actually inspired, ironically, by humans not having empathy. But I don't want to get too far off topic. Let's not talk about Android's Dream of Electric Sheep. Uh, let's talk about this work. So, like I said, this is, uh, in my opinion, Blade Runner is the real origin of what we now refer to as cyberpunk. And I can talk about that a little bit, just, just 
in itself, because cyberpunk is not just about a, a it's it's a particular slice of science fiction. Obviously, there's higher technology in it. Obviously, there's you know things that we would usually associate with science fiction, like androids and spaceships and whatnot. Keep in mind, this is a society that we demonstrate here in Blade Runner that has access to other worlds. That is an interstellar species. This is an interstellar setting, and yet, despite that fact, we see just how much of a pit. LA is, and how horrible the plight of the individual is, and how terrible it is to live. There's a direct quote, which I'm going to paraphrase here. If you ain't cop, you're little people, and the best thing the little people can do is get out of the way, or something like that. In other words, this is a society where it sucks to live in it, unless you are absolutely at the very top, upper echelons of this, of this world, of this civilization. You're screwed. Even the people in the middle are basically just people who have a little bit more privilege than the people below them. It's a very uh, tiered system, if you will. And I think that's probably the single biggest aspect to what defines a cyberpunk. The fact that we have all this wonderful, amazing technology, almost like Star Trek level, right? But unlike Star Trek, we have none of the ideology to really help balance that out. Instead, what we see is a more dark and unpleasant, not quite dystopian, dystopians further down the line. This is just a more mundane look at what people theorize hu real-life humans would be like if we had access to this kind of technology. In other words, we'd still have poverty, we'd still have slums, we'd still have hunger, we'd still have you know, medical issues, we'd still have segregation and, and caste systems and, and, and uh, elitism. You know, all the, all the various horrible things that we have right now in real life and have had for forever in real life would therefore, in, in, in this logic, continue to be existing even though the tech around us change, changes. Most settings that explore science fiction do so in a way that it, it acknowledges a slightly variant culture based on the technology, the, 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 the presumption, if you will, that that technology enables us as, as a species, or whoever the species in question happens to be, to be different. I'm not saying better, I'm not saying worse, just different, different progression, different uh, presentation. But in cyberpunk, it's normal people who are flawed and terrible and greedy and vicious and all sorts of other horrible things, good and bad, mostly bad, because cyberpunk usually leans on the bad side of things, in order to present them, they just happen to be in a setting that has access to things like a full-body conversion, to name one example. Um, the I, I have a weird question, though. I mean, and it, it's funny to me, because this is a society where they can make androids so close to human that aside from a few little details, and, of course, the Voight-Kampf test, the only way to tell that they're androids is if you're well, do the Voight-Kampf test, or you kill them, basically. They are so human-like. That is the level of technology we have here. And again, off-world is a thing. This is a setting that has gone to space, that has colonized space. Now, I don't know if you understand how big of a deal that is, realistically speaking, but holy crap. And yet we still see people mulling about in the chaos of a slum in the rain, eating noodles, and barely scraping by, you know? Those two things side by side, it's, it's a very unique perspective, and it helps lead into the next thing I want to talk about. But I want to just add one question here before we move on. How bad is it off-world? Like, I'm genuinely really curious how horrible it is off-world, for, for, or how great it is, or how, how neutral it is. I, I want to know, I want to know what's going on 
on you know on these other colonized worlds and see if it really is better because the cynicism in me and of course based on how I interpret Blade Runner is the it says that the off-world colonies are actually just as bad as Earth is or at the very least almost as bad you know getting there now of course there is another way you could take that which is also incredibly cynical and that is the idea that the off-world colonies are way better in like every way to parallel something I've talked about recently, you remember how in Deus Ex they had this uh, this space station that only the super rich could afford to live in, and that you know was just basically living a life of opulence, well above what you'd live down on Earth, right? I'm picturing something kind of like that. The idea that if you are one of the super rich, you can afford to go and live in one of these paradise colonies. But, of course, if you're not super rich, then you're screwed. And I know what you're saying. Well, then why are they constantly advertising going off-world? Oh, that's easy. Slave labor. No, I'm basically serious. It may not literally be enslavement in the traditional sense of the word, but something along those lines. Cheap labor, if you will. I mean, someone's got to maintain the Paradise Colony, right? We can't just strap a person to a, to a, brain, a, a machine and have their spines replaced and all those other horrible things. Um... So, <laughs> uh, next thing I want to talk about, like I said, segueing here, is the directorial style of this movie that kind of comes straight out of that presentation of L.A. Like I said, a bunch of crowded people, rain, dark, eating noodles, just a whole... I, I, I wish I could just show you the whole movie. I know that sounds weird, but this is like one of the few movies I would actually want to do a lore run on. Uh, the whole point of a lore run, well, there's two two major points of a lore run. First of all, and arguably most importantly, is the interactive point. The point that you guys share with me as much as I share with you, and we bounce ideas off of each other. Second big point of a lore run is I can show you while it's happening back here. I can actually point to that and say, look, see that? Did you see that? Did you see that awesome thing over there? You know, I can actually point to things as they happen rather than explain them to you like I'm doing right now. It's one of the reasons I prefer the lore run format. Um... This movie would be a great, great low-run movie because of the fact that there is so much visual presentation. There's so much visual storytelling in this movie. It's all over the place. I, every scene has something in it that tells a story or helps to push the narrative forward without actually having dialogue that needs to say, and now such and such. You know, there's no need for that kind of narrative, uh, or excuse me, narration on top of things. Instead, it's just... Well, so here's this thing. Like, there's this great... great I, I wrote down a few examples. So, first of all, Sebastian. I know this is out of order, but I wrote these down as they came to me. Sebastian, with his massive, empty, you know, quiet house and his little toys. I mean, yeah, the, the actor who plays Sebastian, I, I forget his name, forgive me, does a great job of the presentation. But the visual representation of his house and his little toys in so many ways really represents that man and his life and where he's gone in his sad, quiet... Uh, presentation. Uh, the whole idea of the overwhelming Asian influence, an actual deliberate mix of both Japanese and Chinese, which gets a, which just makes you think, did Asia in general unify at some point in this future? Or it, did, did it get to the point where the two cultures have basically been consumed by the West, by, the, by, the, by consumer culture? You know, I, there, there's so many different ways to interpret that, and of course the new languages and whatnot. 
the of course the eye motif i would i would be foolish if i didn't represent the eye motif which is everywhere and the animal motif uh both of those i'll actually be talking about later though but both of those a lot of visual representation of that um the pyramid the massive pyramid of the tyrell corporation which for me just immediately made me think of 1984 the ministry of truth you know first time i see that i'm like mm. <laughs> i remember seeing this when i was pretty young actually and being kind of weirded out by it Especially since it, it looked like an action flick, and it wasn't, and I, I ended up liking that, go figure. Um, all of L.A. I, I, I really wish I could just, like, if I just wrote down everything, it would just be three pages of this scene, and then this scene, and then this scene. Um, Gaff himself, the way he presents himself, the way he talks, uh, the scene transitions. There's several scenes where they, again, they could have said... They could have inserted dialogue, and the dialogue could have said, well, now I need to go here, and now I need to go do this, and now I need to go talk uh, to this other guy, and here's where my investigation's going. You know, Captain's Log, or whatever. And instead they just show a scene with him thinking, and then show a scene with, you know, a, a picture or whatever, and then show, put it, basically show him putting the pieces together, and then cut to the next scene and show the investigation proceeding that way. It's really well done. Great, great, great directing. I mean, this is Ridley Scott, so duh. But, uh... Um, I think it's Ridley Scott. I'm going to feel really stupid if it isn't. I'm almost positive it is. Because there's a whole thing about that. Um, I'm going to go ahead and pause here in my discussions of themes to go ahead and just shift gear for a moment. Let's talk about the the versions thing. Uh, so those of you not aware, uh, like I said, there are, many, there are multiple versions of this movie. And I kind of already mentioned that. But the reason I want to bring it up is because... It is my opinion that no individual has more of a say than any other individual on what is definitive when it comes to this movie. Ridley disagreed with Harrison Ford, who disagreed with the writer, who disagreed with the book. I, I, it doesn't matter. Uh, for me, this entire film, by its very nature, especially thanks to, and this is why I'm segueing this here, that visual presentation, the entire point of having that constant visual storytelling is so that you don't have a voice saying and then this happened and then that happened and then this you don't have that in this movie at least not for the most part you have a series of of thought-provoking scenes that are designed to make you think that's why i call this an interpretive work and i think that's very very important to keep in mind because i have yet to hear an interpretation of this movie that i thought was just flat out stupid I've heard many different presentations of the, of the ideas and thoughts and concepts that are presented in this movie, and I think everyone I've heard thus far is valid. And I, by the way, would absolutely love it if you guys could give me your thoughts and interpretations as well. So I just wanted to kind of shove that in there. Um, so let's talk about the eye. Um, there's some really obvious symbolism when it came to the eye, but I thought if I didn't actually discuss it, people would probably point it out. So let me just go ahead and discuss the obvious with the eye. <clears throat> One of the biggest motifs of the film is the eyes. Uh, it's pretty much everywhere. You could basically make a drinking game out of it. It's like, oh, then there's the eye that's always watching, you know, the, 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 the Voight-Kampf test, which looks into the eyes and the whole idea of the human soul, you know, all that fun stuff. The idea of... Uh, the replicants having the glow, which, by the way, has been confirmed to be a narrative effect, not a literal effect. In other words, you can't, in-universe, look into a replicant's eyes and see the glow. And that's logical. If it was that easy to figure it out, you'd think it would be a lot easier to find replicants and determine where they are one, wouldn't you? Uh, there's an entire person whose job is crafting eyes, like Chu does. Um, 
there's some really, really obvious symbolism there, but I do feel like there's one point I've never really heard discussed properly. It's the only thing I want to discuss about the eye motif, you know, the whole windows to the soul thing, right? The idea of whether or not there's a soul in there being the point of the Voight-Kampf test. The idea of, and I think Sci-Fi Debris mentioned this as well, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, that, that humanity is not a pass-fail. It's not a binary thing, ironically. It's more of a gradient scale, hence why uh, different people take a different number of questions of the Voight-Kampf test to determine whether or not they are a replicant, like... Uh, you know, our main protag uh, female protagonist taking absolutely forever to go through it, whereas Leon was like, what, on question two? <laughs> and then there are people who usually take like 10 to 20 or whatever. So th there's, there's a gradient scale of humanity there. Um, and thus, there's a gradient scale of how much of the, the eye presents yourself, right? But here's the part I've never really heard anyone discuss. When it comes to Tyrell, uh, he has massive distorting glasses that warp and shift his eye. Now, there's a motif there which I'll talk about later, but the point being made here is when you look into Tyrell's eyes, you see a warped, twisted, distorted vision, and when he looks out on the world, he sees something that he wouldn't normally see from his own normal eyesight. The idea here being, again, kind of obvious, but I haven't really heard anyone discuss this, the idea here being that Tyrell's, let's just put it how it is, soul, his, his morality, his conscience, whatever you want to call it, is off, twisted, distorted, that this is an evil man. And I, I really feel that that to be absolutely true. Even while Roy comes to him, begging him for help, desperately thinking of new ideas, Tyrell just keeps objectifying him, calling him a prize, to, you know, treating him as if he's some kind of thing, she should be proud of what he's done. And in no point in time do I feel even the tiniest glimmer of sympathy or empathy or any level of decency from Tyrell whatsoever. Instead, it's just, yep, you're going to die, it's cool, don't worry. You were a wonderful toy while you were here. And then, of course, I would be remiss if I didn't point out that Roy then kills Tyrell through the eyes in a fairly horrifying scene, actually. I'd say probably the second most horrifying scene in this movie for me, personally. Uh, the first, if you're curious, would be uh, Zora's death. I had to think of her name real quick. Um, so, or, no, not Zora. I'm sorry. Wrong person, wrong person. Pris. <laughs> I get those two confused for some reason. There's just the names, not the characters. Let's talk about that uh, obvious motif I've referenced several times. Animals. This is something that I consider to be wonderfully subtle about this movie. It's something I haven't actually seen anyone else discuss to date either. So there is an there's there is an animal motif in the movie, and I wrote down a couple of notes as I was going through Leon being likened unto a turtle. You know, slow, uh, durable, not really picking up on things correctly. Obviously the turtle was mentioned in the test. Uh, Roy being the wolf. Everything about his presentation, especially in his final confrontation with Decker, really shows that one. Uh, Zora, the snake, very obvious. Pris, raccoon, very obvious. Tyrell, the owl. I mean, he actually had an owl, but of course, the giant glasses thing like I just mentioned. Sebastian, being a mouse, tiny, quiet, unassuming, please leave me alone, hiding in his hole. Um, Decker, of course, being the unicorn. Uh, which I will get into that later, by the way. Um, I mention all of these, though, because for me, I think the subtlety here, you know, why an animal motif? You don't just do something like that for its own sake, at least not in a work like this. My interpretation is that this is trying to get across the idea that these people should be considered more valuable than they are. 
Remember, or if you haven't seen this movie, this is a setting in which animals are super rare and are actually valued more than human lives. You know, it's, it's, it's the reality where PETA took over, basically. And it's so... <laughs> the idea of each of these replicants and Deckard being presented... Uh, and Tyrell, actually, excuse me. Uh, being presented as a animal in my opinion, helps to emphasize that idea without ever actually saying it. Again, it's part of that visual storytelling thing. The presentation that these should be valuable individuals, valuable people, valuable commodities, whatever term you want to use there, there should be worth there. And yet in all of the cases above, you'll notice that there isn't any. Deckard is treated as just another hound dog. All of the replicants are treated as dangerous animals that need to be put down. No pun intended, obviously. They're treated as if... Uh, as, as malfunctioning toasters. Let's just go in with that term. term. And of course, Tyrell's own death is treated as, as almost a, a, a non-thing. And Roy himself, despite everything, values his life not at all, nor indeed does anyone else. So we see that uh, present throughout this animal motif. Um, it is also, of course, entirely likely that there is an in-character uh, ex uh, ex explanation for this as well. The idea that these characters... I mean, remember, uh, Pris doesn't like, she actually does the raccoon thing. Zora actually wears the snake outfit, you know. Um, Tyrell actually has an owl. The idea here being that these characters have been emulating animals in character, in lore, if you will, because they actually revere and venerate animals, as I previously mentioned with regards to the setting, and so to them it would be a great... Um, it would be a, a, an honor. Uh, it would be a shine of showing respect it would be a way of trying to venerate themselves, to lift themselves up, say, I'm, I'm worth that. I'm as good as that. Look, look, I, I can do that. I'm worth something too, right? You know, that kind of an idea. Now, um, the, let's talk about the replicants while we're going into that. So, I like the presentation of the replicants a lot. A absolute huge props to uh, Rutger Hauer. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. The gentleman who played Roy. Um, they... One of the best things they get across in this movie is their difficulty with processing emotions, and especially complex emotions. There's this great scene where Roy uh, uh, tries to make out with Pris, but the presentation is clearly the kind of don't actually know what they're doing or understand why they're doing it kind of a thing. And then when he is informed of his colleague's death, he has visible difficulty processing that. My interpretation of that has always been the idea that the replicants have, shall we say, a, a line of code to prevent an improper feedback loop in their emotional grid that, that takes any, any input, any, any emotional stimuli that they can't process and loops it into something they can process, something easier to understand, something simpler to process, something simpler to com compute, if you will. This would explain very clearly and easily Leon's reaction when he shot the guy, just to name one example of what I'm talking about. Because he literally was, he looked so confused and so lost, and then he just shoots the guy after he asks about his mother. In other words, he replaced all of that confusion and all of that lack of understanding with something he could understand. Anger, one of the more basic of emotions, and probably something that has been programmed into these replicants. Lord knows we see all of them demonstrate anger to some extent or another. Also, fear. Um, <laughs> and if you're wondering why you would program a slave race to have, know both anger and fear, you're just not thinking like the Tyrell Corporation. Um, 
replicants in the movie. Now, let, this is where one of the ways in which the movie very clearly just separates itself from the book. Um, replicants in the movie, in my opinion, in my interpretation, are very clear examples of droid effect. In the off chance you've never heard me talk about droid effect, droid effect is the idea that you have crafted something with sufficient complexity and sufficient advancement that when it reaches a certain point of interaction with its surrounding, if it has enough experience, in other words, experiences, I don't mean like XP points, I mean like if it reaches a point where it has encountered enough things and had enough external stimuli, it grows. Kind of like a person does, because that's exactly what happens to human beings. When you're a baby, you don't understand complex human emotions and thoughts and societies. It could be argued a human baby is not sentient or sapient. We grow to be that, arguably, uh, due to experiences, due to stimuli. That's, that's how learning works. I've talked about this so, so many times. That is droid effect in a nutshell. So in the movie, replicants, in my opinion, are a very, very clear example of droid effect, especially Roy, if you watch his progression throughout the movie, from the beginning uh, with his much, much simpler presentation towards the end, where you can see some actual complexities and understanding up there. Uh, and it's such a damn shame because, so in Star Wars, the way they deal with the droid effect is they wipe their memory periodically, which basically erases those experiences and thus erases the emotion and understanding and com complexity and sentience and sapience and self-willed understanding that came with that. I've actually talked about this topic before, and I don't want to get into it too much now. It's horrifying, I'm just going to say that. The whole memory wipe thing in Star Wars is pretty damn horrifying because droids are a slave race, just like the replicants are. But Blade Runner, in my opinion, does a much better job of examining how absolutely horrible this thought is without ever actually doing so on purpose. But before I get to that, let's talk about how uh, Blade Runner deals with the problem of making a slave race. Limited lifespan. They are deliberately designed to fail right at about the point in time they start to actually understand what that means. In other words, if you're not paying attention, right about at the point in time which you actually understand what it means to die and all the, well, not all of them, but, you know, some of the horrors and implications of that and all the emotional connection to death, then you die. That is so many levels of messed up, I don't even know where to start. But I said that this movie examines this better than Star Wars usually has. To explain a little bit what I mean by that, Roy is a combat model, right? Military uh, replicant, okay? That means he went off to fight other people. Now, there is no hint in, any, in anything in the movie of there being alien races that have been discovered. Now, I know that's a weird thing to point out, but I point it out because that means it is statistically most likely that the things that he would go to fight are other human factions, right? Make sense? Given the prevalence of replicants and their relative availability, is it not then logical that the people who bought him to fight their enemies would be it would be fighting against people who bought their own replicants? In other words, this is all theory, of course. The idea here being that replicants are literally proxy armies. That at this point in time, it's gotten to the point where, which is ironic because human life is so damn cheap in this setting, that replicants are fighting replicants at behest of their human masters. And if that doesn't sound like something from Star Wars, then I've failed at my job here. But again, we see a very down-to-earth human perspective on that. Now, I mean, I, I want to give Star Wars some props. Several of the things, most notably some of the books and the Clone Wars series, 
uh, and some of the Rebel series really went into detail on how horrible it was being a clone and being a droid in in the great the Clone Wars. But this entire movie, in my opinion, Roy is more of a main character than Deckard is in this movie. It really is his story. Deckard just happens to be passing through it, and we see through his eyes how really horrible it is to be a creature whose entire job is to kill other creatures whose entire job it is to kill other creatures who yeah I think you get it and we get the impression that Roy was a truly stupendous model he survived four years of combat that's actually saying something and we see in action some of the stuff he can pull off it's amazing top of the line and yet for all of that amazing ingenuity and the intelligence you know he beat Tyrell at chess uh I, just as an aside, by the way, apparently the replication of the Immortal chess game was actually an, uh, an, a coincidence. I don't know if that's true or not, it's just something I read. So he beat Tyrell at chess. He is vastly superior when it comes to agility and strength and endurance. There's a wonderfully horrific scene where he drives a freaking nail through his hand because the adrenaline rush, or robotic equivalent, will enable him to have a few precious minutes of life. I mean, seriously. And yet all that incredible ingenuity and creativity and design, think about the complexity required to craft an individual like that. And for all that, he was designed to be little more than a pawn. Another gun aimed at an enemy for the right price, of course. More human than human. Uh, I'm going to talk about the characters, and then I'm going to talk about my big point. You know, I always save my big point for last. I don't have much to say about most of the characters, believe it or not. Uh, I think most of it is really self-explanatory. Uh, I do have a couple of brief notes about Pris, Zora, and Leon. So Pris, what the crap? <laughs> this is a, a individual. I mean, okay, so going back to everything I just discussed, which is why I wanted to segue to this, this is a crafted slave who has a deliberately limited lifespan, whose job it is is to have whatever horrible levels of sex that is required of her for whoever happens to have the money to purchase her for four years, and then right about the point in time she grows sophisticated enough to be disgusted by this horrific act, she dies. I have no words in any language I know, which is English, because that's the only language I really know. Um to explain how absolutely disgusting that is. I also want to say that her death was probably uh, one of the most horrifying things in the movie, like I said earlier. Uh, it's a great job with the sound design, especially. The sound that was being presented really sounded like, if you've ever seen a machine, uh, like in a factory or whatever, because I've seen this a couple of times in my life, uh, that, that completely, like, pops a gear, for example, and the sound of metal screeching on metal as everything just kind of flies completely out of control and pieces are going everywhere, and it's just this cacophony of nightmarish sounds. It's really horrifying. That's kind of what it sounded like for her. It sounded like she was a machine that was completely malfunctioning, that was tearing itself apart as she died, and it was really horrible. And um, just, yeah, just, 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 wow, holy crap. Um, so, that's nice. Uh, Zora. I mentioned Zora next because I'm an idiot and wrote her after Pris. As I said, I, I don't do my notes linearly. I kind of do sections. Um, 
what I find interesting about Zora is so she was a political assassin model, right? And she clearly had no problems killing Deckard when he came into her room. And yet the moment she's interrupted, she chooses to flee rather than continuing to kill. For me, this I think is probably one of the better visual representations of... Uh, from anyone other than Roy, I should say, of what it's like to live as a replicant. This is someone who realizes the moment other people came in, that's over. It's over. And the only thing that she can do is take the complexity of dread and understanding and all of these emotions that she's probably just barely capable of comprehending and process them down to something that is much easier for a replicant to compute. Fear. So she runs. She runs as hard and as fast as she can to get away and dies quietly, at least as we're presented. And I find that very, very interesting. It really helps to uh, emphasize the plight of the woman, too, because it can be easily argued that this woman has actually done nothing wrong. And yet, for the crime of existing, she is being hunted to extermination. Now, yes, I know, replicants are actually illegal on Earth, which is a whole other level of stupid I'm not going to get into. Uh, let's talk about Leon. He's, a, he's probably the easiest to explain, and I have the least to say about him. Um, I mentioned the turtle idea earlier, that whole slow thing. I don't mean literally physically slow. It, you could tell that he is just not someone who has developed intellectually as much as the others, or indeed maybe was never intended to. Like Roy was crafted to be this beautiful art artifice of, of amazingness, whereas Leon is clearly just barely capable of understanding basic instructions. Um, but I also mention this because Leon even though he's presented as kind of a psychopath in the way he interacts with Deckard, I don't actually agree with that assessment, at least in my interpretation. What I see is a child. I see someone who doesn't really understand. And when he doesn't understand, he lashes out, like a child will. I just recently, by my perspective, looked at an episode of Voyager called Riddles. Uh, not to spoil too much, but basically it's the episode where Tuvok loses a lot of his intellect backing his mind, because his mind was scrambled. And he reacts to things he doesn't understand like a child would. He gets angry about it. He lashes out about it. But then he feels bad about it. You know, this is, this is exactly what I see in Leon. I just see some poor kid who really has no idea how to do anything about his situation, and therefore is just lashing out. Like, let's be honest with ourselves, most people probably would too. Tyrell... Honestly, I really don't have much else to say, but I already said the big thing, the idea of his glasses and his distorted soul. Obviously an incredible genius. What I find most interesting about him is he's not completely uncaring. He... It, it's, it's a weird mix, and the actor does a great job of this. He doesn't treat Roy as if he's just property. He treats him as if he's glorious property. And it's a weird shading on that that you usually don't see from this kind of uh, objectification. He treats Roy as if he is a masterpiece that he is proud of having crafted. And yet Roy, of course, is trying to be not a painting. Or not a hammer, if you will. Well-crafted hammer. But, you know, he doesn't want to be like that. He, he displays such a level of apathy for Roy and the plight of the replicants as a whole. And, of course, he dies horribly screaming. And yet, one of the things I find most interesting is that Tyrell, or not Tyrell, excuse me, Roy, when he's killing Tyrell, 
is weeping. And you can see afterwards in one in the cut I was watching, you can see afterwards he's bothered by it. Like it's it, it he doesn't fully process it. Or worse, he is starting to fully process this kind of emotions, and the whole idea of killing is starting to disgust him. Which could go a long way to explaining, you know, what he does in the next thing. Which brings me to Roy, consequently. First of all, as I said, I just want to say this again, uh, Rutger Hauer absolutely nails it. Very, very good performance. Um, of course, if I don't mention it, someone else will. He ad-libbed the uh, bits and pieces of the final amazing little uh, speech, his, his, his dying words, uh, which is a great scene, one of the greatest scenes in cinema history, in my honest opinion. I mean that sincerely. One of the really horrible things about poor Roy, I mean, I've already talked a lot about him, so I don't have too much more to add. If you notice throughout the movie, he goes through all the stages of grief in order, and rather presentedly. He goes through denial, then he gets angry, then he tries to bargain, then he feels depression, and at the end he feels acceptance. In my opinion, Roy is the best way to present something like the replicant situation. Uh, characters like Leon and Zora... Uh, are a good way to show different shadings of what happens to a replicant. But Roy is the er replicant. He is someone who goes through all of this mess and all of these situations and all of this this nightmare and has enough intellect to logically comprehend what he's going through but can't properly, I hate to keep using this word, process the impact of what he's going through. It's like going through something horrifically tragic and knowing it's horrifically tra tragic, but not really understanding the why, and not really knowing how to react to it. So you just stare at it, like in awe, as your hand is being slowly eaten by a wood chipper, you know? Because you don't really know how to, to react to it. Now, got a couple more points here, wrapping it up soon. There's two big questions of this movie, and the first I want to examine right now, and this is related to Roy, which is why I'm doing it here. Why save Deckard's life? The two most common things I've heard a few trillion times repeated are he did it because uh, he, 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 he learned the value of life by the end of his life and he wanted proof of his own existence. Forgive me for borrowing a term from Kingdom Hearts 2, but again, that's the whole point of the proof of existence because the idea was that the nobodies, once gone, were gone utterly erased, and so the only way that anyone would know they ever existed was to have proof of their existence. So the idea being that Roy wanted Deckard to live on so that some memory of him, someone who recalled who he was, some echo of his existence still reverberated throughout you know, the world, through life, through situation, whatever you want to call that. Uh, as you might imagine, I don't actually subscribe to either of these ideas. I have a third idea, which I've never... We really actually heard mentioned before. Excuse me, Yon. <clears throat> I think he did it because he chose to. Let me explain what I mean by that. Roy's life has been that of enslavement. He has killed because he was told to. He has fought because he was told to. He has died. He was dying, I should say, because he was told to. And when he tried to rebel against it, he was told he couldn't. Roy never really actually took any action other than what was required of him. 
And here at the end, and it could be argued there's one of the choice he makes, but here at the end, I personally think that Roy understood finally the value of choosing his own decision. It was expected of him to let Deckard die. He was chasing after him, after all, toying with him, quite literally. It was expected of his master. Remember? Remember what Tyrell told him? Live with your, with your brief life. You know, experience it to its fullest. And so he is. He howls and he strips down and he chases after and makes a whole game out of it. And yet at the end he decides to defy his last order. And he actually chooses, arguably for the first time in his life, he decides for himself. He doesn't kill, because he was programmed to. He doesn't turn on his master, because that was expected of him. He doesn't try to torture his opponent, his enemy, because it was, uh, you know, it, it was intimated to him. He chooses rather than cho rather than continuing to be a slave. That's my big theory as to why Roy saved uh, Deckard's life right at the end there. Because the reality, and as you, and, and if in my opinion, in my interpretation, as you see him watching Deckard struggling there on the beam, you could see. This, these thoughts going through his head as he's like, hmm, you know, and he mentions it's quite a, it's quite an experience to live in fear. That's what it's like to be a slave, and then he grabs him and pulls him up. I like that a lot. Obviously, let me make this clear. I'm not saying my interpretation is the right one. This is an interpretive work. I have actually heard three other interpretations, which I will not share with you right now. I would love to hear your guys' thoughts on why you think Roy uh, spared Deckard. As ever, I love discussing this kind of thing, and I'll probably respond to a few of the comments, uh, provided I have the time to do so. But of course, this leads us into the last character that I really feel like talking about, because I don't really have anything to say about her in this movie. Deckard. Let me just go ahead and say this right off. It is my interpretation that Deckard is a human. I'm just going to lay that out there. Um, I don't really have particularly strong evidence for that. I will even admit that there's pretty strong evidence that he is a replicant. I will even admit that the fact that the director flat out said he was a replicant probably inclines itself towards that. And as we already discussed, several people disagree on whether or not Deckard is a replicant. And it's the thing I have heard most discussed about this film, which I actually find to be a bit of a shame. Um, because the thing I, I feel most interesting about this film is the cyberpunk thing, which I already talked about, and the thing I haven't talked about yet, my last point. But, regardless, is Deckard a replicant? My reasons for saying so are mostly narrative. In my viewpoint, the theme and the presentation of the film is improved by his being a human. Because the idea here is that this is a human being who decides to... Who, whose life is irrelevant and yet is being impacted by the the lives that he is taking. Remember every single scene when he kills one of the replicants, he looks disgusted, horrified, screwed up. And when he encounters some of his other fellow humans, most notably the racist cop, his response again is just ugh. Ugh, you know? Clear an animus disgust. One of the things I like most about Deckard as a character is that his room says a lot about him. My interpretation of Deckard, and I, I wrote this down here, he is intelligent enough to be terrified of how bad things really are. I'll talk about that point in a second. He is moral enough to be disgusted by it, and he faces this every time he kills. He is flawed enough to be willing to do horrible things that is necessary to survive, and yet he is human enough to justify it. What I mean by that 
by the human enough thing, most especially, the idea that it's easy to say we're human enough to do horrible things to survive, but I don't think that's really a definition of being human so much as a definition of being an animal. An animal will do a horrible thing to survive. A human can do a horrible thing to survive, but you know what a human will do? They'll justify it up here. They'll come up with excuses. They'll say, oh, you know, it's okay that I do this. I don't have any choice. I'm powerless. What can I do? Life may be horrible. You know, if I, forgive me for quoting Luke over in A New Hope. Yeah, the Empire's horrible and it's terrible and, all, and it sucks and all that, but there's nothing I can do about it. That is a human reaction. The idea of looking at the insurmountable and trying to justify a way of not having to deal with it, regardless of whatever lies underneath, whether it's fear or cowardice or pride or ego or apathy, doesn't matter. It is human nature to reason and to come up with a reason to explain what we already know to be true. But I want to talk about that earlier point. Uh, this is something my mom used to say in real life, and it's something that's kind of stuck with me ever since. She used to say that she felt really bad for the people in the world, past and present, who are truly intelligent, who are very, very smart. And the reason she felt bad for them is because it was her estimation that anyone who is that intelligent, that smart, that competent, that good at putting things together, would know how bad things really are, and it would have to terrify them. I feel like we see a little bit of this in Deckard in this one. We see a man who is brilliant. He is clearly very smart. He is very clearly very good at putting things together. We see someone who probably could have aspired to greatness under other circumstances and other settings. And again, the visual representation of him, his presentation, his, his apartment, the fact that he is constantly drinking. We see someone who is very smart and knows how bad things really are and knows how much more he could, as, could have achieved under the right circumstances, and is just sort of bitter about it. I'm not going to say resigned. I don't really get that impression from him until the end of the movie. I think at the end he is so wor worked down, so broken, so ground into the dirt, that when Roy is standing there, rather than asking for help or doing anything else he could, he just spits at Roy as he slowly slips off the beam to fall to his death. That at that point in time, Deckard actually became broken, had finally actually accepted the major theme of this movie, which is my final point. There are so many obvious themes in this movie, and I've heard them discussed a few dozen times, and yet, to my astonishment, I have never actually heard anyone uh, discuss what I consider to be the strongest theme of the entire movie. In my opinion, in my interpretation, the biggest theme of the movie is the fact that the individual does not matter. The entire idea of dehumanization, of devaluing of human life, of devaluing of replicant life. How many individuals' lives matter in this movie? Does Deckard matter when it comes to the cops nearby or the replicants he kills? Do the replicants' lives matter when they are ordered to be killed or when Deckard himself kills them? Does Tyrell matter when he is murdered by Roy? I mean, and I know that sounds like a weird thing, but think about this for a moment. 
Do you think with the death of Tyrell, the entire corporation is just going to find a kind of fall apart and life will be happy and jolly and sunshines from The Shining afterwards? Or do you think the corporation is just going to keep moving on like it always has, just with another person on the top of the heap now? There's this great line right at the end. It's a pity she won't live, but then who does? In my opinion, that line really hammers this point in better than anything else does. You, and you, and you, and you do not matter. The individual is irrelevant. And this is one of the reasons why I find the whole Deckard as a replicant thing uh, interesting, because it does matter. It certainly would change many aspects of the story, but in my opinion, my interpretation, it would not change the overall theme of the work. Tell me something. If Deckard is a human, does that change that theme? Or does it still fit the theme? Well, obviously it still fits the theme. I've already actually explained how it does. But what if he was a replicant? Well, in that case, he's literally just another pawn, isn't he? He's just another Roy being pitted up against other replicants because that's what we do with our pawns. I mean, it's worth noting in a deleted scene that was actually kind of you know, never actually really properly done. There's this whole thing where Tyrell, the Tyrell that Roy kills, was actually a replicant, and the real Tyrell had died years before, and was put in, he put himself in a cryostasis. Once again, emphasizing that the individual does not matter, that Tyrell never mattered. It was the Tyrell Corporation that mattered. It was the police that mattered. It was the civilization that mattered and the overarching overabundance of control that is being leashed upon all the individuals that mattered. It's one of the reasons I say that this movie kind of dips its toes into the waters of dystopia. It's nowhere near as bad as 1984 or even Brazil or anything like that, but it still feels like a setting in which you are completely irrelevant. And I think that really gets across especially in Roy and Deckard's presentation. Harrison Ford does an amazing job as well in this movie. He gets lots of props as well. That is all I've got to talk about. I hope that was worthwhile because it was interesting watching this movie again one and a half times. I ended up re-watching quite a bit of it for this. Um, so we're going to take a shift away from the cyberpunk genre next week and kind of shift into a new direction. So I hope I'll see you next week, guys.